Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you young kids, follow us on Instagram. Put a filter on us at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. From his Broadway debut as the title role in 1972's Pippin, all the way up to the most recent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, today's guest has one of the most versatile theatrical resumes. Not only is he an accomplished actor, he's a director, a composer, an educator, a narrator of audiobooks, and one of the major players in having Los Angeles recognized as a place for not just film work, but theater work as well. A few of his on-stage appearances include Children of a Lesser God, Fools, for which he also wrote the incidental music, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, Hurley Burley, and Butterfly, Love Letters, Getting Away with Murder, Ragtime, and countless appearances on TV and film in The Boys from Brazil, Dragnet, Ironside, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Crazy Like a Fox, Friends, Feud, and so many more. And to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Bob Fosse, Howard Keel, Irene Ryan, Mike Nichols, Stephen Sondheim, Al Prince, and so many more, here is Arthur Rubenstein's son, John Rubenstein. It's so good to see you again, John. Thanks so much for doing part two on this. Okay, so we'll pick up from where we left off, and what we were talking about was Pippin, actually. When we were last talking, you had just booked the show. Uh, Bob Fosse had come to your house. And so tell us about this rehearsal process for Pippin. Well, I don't know if it was if it was any different or unique in any way. I mean, Bob himself was unique just in terms of his personality. What does that mean? Because <laughs> like, we've, well, I mean, we've read I, I in the to... books, we know, but like firsthand knowledge, like what does that, what does that really mean when you walk, because you've been in many rehearsal rooms. What is a rehearsal room when you walk mm. in and Bob Fosse's there? Well, it's, it's very relaxed. You know, each rehearsal for whatever it is, musical or play in, in a tiny little waiver theater or in a big Broadway uh, production, 
the the rehearsal chemistry, the feeling mm. is dictated by the director, who he or she is, how they approach people, also the piece, but not right. as much. I mean, you can be doing a deep, dark, horrible tragedy and spend all your time in rehearsal laughing and having a great time and, you know, getting drunk afterwards and sure. going out to eat and telling your funny stories and then going back into the show and being there. Or you can do a wild farce comedy uh, where everybody's tense and, and yeah. competitive and uh, feeling inadequate. I mean, you know, so it's right. all dictated by how the director uh, uh, hits the ground running. And Bob was very understated. I mean, the moment I do Bob, my shoulders come up. Because mm. that's, that's how he was. He had a cigarette always hanging out of his mouth, uh, which made him uh, not be this kind of a person because he had, right. he had to hold on to the Yeah, oh, interesting, so that, yeah. That, that brought down the temperature just that much because he had to sort of underplay things or the cigarette would fall out. Interesting. Uh, and he, his feet were turned in as you can see in all his dancing, all his right. choreography, his were like that. But he was alive and he was very erudite. He used big words sometimes. He, he mm. talked in, in images. And then he would switch from that to talking dollars and cents, audience. We got to get the laugh. You got to turn your head like that, count to three, and then turn it back and bug mm. out your eyes. That'll get the laugh. He was like that. He he had an, a sense of the audience, not only a sense in in terms of knowing about what an audience wants and needs, but in loving the audience. Very often the audience is treated subliminally, not openly, as a sort of of an antagonist. Yes. We gotta mm. we gotta get them. We gotta, you gotta win them over. Yeah. Yeah, win yeah. them over. They're yeah. against us. We gotta make sure we gotta trick them into thinking blah blah blah. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, I have never felt that because I grew up with my father. And my yeah. father was a great pianist. And he his approach to an audience was loving them, wanting to give them the gift of this great music that had been written by somebody else. And he was the middleman to take what that person had done out of their heart and soul and bestow it with everything he had in him as well as he could and as, and as emotionally correctly as he could to people sitting there hoping to have their lives somehow enhanced for those couple of hours by listening to that music and some directors are are of the antagonistic kind they're still very creative and you love working with them and they are full of ideas and stuff but bob was not like that bob was the audience is going to want this and we're going to mm. give them that and then that don't hold that back because if they see that all right now bang and that so he had this sort of avuncular uh, sort of generous approach to the audience, but still very smart, very showbiz smart, very modest, very friendly, looking forward, having fun. To him, it was fun. Cigarette in his mouth. We're going to do this. There's going to be a little bit of that. some bullshit, you know, but we're going to try to fix it because you know, there's some crap in here. We're going to get rid of it. And, you know, yeah, yeah. He, he made you feel like 
you were all going to play a fantastic game together. Right. Like you were contributing to the Contributing. I mean, I was you're, you're a part movie. of the whole. I was a, a, a rookie. You know, I'd done right. plenty of theater. I had plenty sure. of confidence in, in myself. Yes. But uh, this is my first Broadway show, and I was playing the title role, and it was Mr. Fossey, you know. And so... Uh, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> uh, he made me immediately feel like he and I were doing a show together along with Ben and Jill and mm-hmm. Irene and yeah. all the dancers, we were, we were going to put this together. What were some of the major changes to the show from out of town to what eventually ended up on Broadway or, or was it pretty much done in DC? Really? The, the changes were small ones. They were, they were lines, you know, mm-hmm. the book was, was a little fussy, a little precious. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff about falconry and and Visigoths, and it, it, it got it got a little bit. I don't know what word to use. It, it, from the very beginning, I had very little faith in it myself. But the fixes that were done were not really major ones. Things were unfalconified a little bit, and and wherever Bob could, he would ask for them to insert something a little bit dirty asshole and you know those those words weren't in the script if my memory serves uh when we when i first read it and when we showed up at rehearsal yeah. the first day we weren't calling each other asshole and uh, you know that kind of stuff mm. and those things were put in and then it was a two-act musical and at the end of act one there was a big monk number when Pippin goes to kill his father, there was a big number with all of all of us in monk Monks? robes and hoods and our our rope belts, and we were twirling the belts, and what? it was a big dance number. <laughs> my my images of Gene Foote, who was one of the dancers, <laughs> one of the great dancers in that company, uh, twirling his twirling his rope because he. <laughs> He twirled it better than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And then we did a, what they call a gypsy run through or something yep. like that uh, before leaving to Washington. So it was our final thing. And we went into, I think it was the Imperial, which was, I guess, empty in preparation for us, but we weren't going to be there for a yep. couple of months. So it might've been another theater. I don't really remember. We did a lot of rehearsing in the Barrymore. Mm. Oh. But we all got together in this theater and we did the whole show for very, very few people. But among them, Neil Simon and Herb Gardner, uh, Bob's closest buddies. And they sat with him afterwards and said, you got to lose the monk number. <laughs> and so the very first thing when we showed up in Washington, D.C. at the Opera House up in the rehearsal room was, uh, we're cutting the monk number, and we're cutting the intermission. We're going to do the whole play in one act. Oh wow! Mm. And that was big. Yeah. And that was the m- biggest, most major change. And then after that, then we started the tech. And Tony Walton had had designed this amazing set. Mm. And in the tech, as each sort of big scene started, and all the elements were flown in and slid in. Bob would say, no, 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 get rid of all that. And he cut like, I don't know what the real percentage, but something like 40% of what Tony had not only designed, but built. 
and brought in and he wow. cut it. And so Pippin got that sort of slightly sparser look. It still was pretty fantastic. And Tony did a miracle with that. With, with mm. the set. But it was a much bigger, much heavier, much more cumbersome set before. And that was the second major change. Mm. But, but he didn't change a lot of the choreography. He worked longer and harder and more hours on the, the, the number War as a Science. <laughs> ah, okay. Where everybody was sitting and doing stuff with their hands and with their feet, and it was all sort of coordinated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was sitting way over on the <clears throat> on the stage left side, uh, trying to learn the choreography, <laughs> trying to keep up and failing and wow. interrupting the number. But that choreography of all those people, that some of them had uh, tambourines and. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob worked on that number more than anything else in the entire show. Interesting. Throughout Interesting. Washington, throughout the previews back in New York, that number, every day we would be doing that goddamn number. <laughs> Tell us <laughs> about the great. first time you ever heard Corner of the Sky. Oh, the first time I ever heard it yeah. was on the tape that Bob brought uh, to my bedroom in the middle of the night. And I, the next morning, I played it when I was eating breakfast with my wife, we played the whole thing. It was Stephen uh, singing the whole uh, score and playing it. And I said, that's a great song. That's a good song. I wonder if I can sing it. <laughs> and it you says did. every actor, I feel like. Every actor is always like, yep, I sing that. can I do it? Um, yeah, because yeah. I was never a singer. You killed it. And I know, but you no, could have fooled us. Could have fooled no, us. No, I didn't. Yeah. I, I got away swear. with it is what I yeah. did. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Ben Vereen in this show, because people still say it's one of the most magical pairings, no oh, pun intended, man. that have ever been on, uh, on Broadway. I don't know. We were brothers. We still are. Mm. You know, we don't see each other. We don't play golf. But, you know, I run into him all the time. He's He lives out here, and then suddenly he's in New York, and, you know, he moves around like a cat. And I run into him occasionally, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's—I don't know what it's—it's—it's it's, it's like running into your brother. Sure, it must be like old family, really, because when is. you've been in a show together so many years ago, but you shared this experience. It, it there is something almost collegiate. It's—it feels like oh, we have this yes. shared experience. Yeah, I yeah. don't have that with almost anybody else, and I've worked with a lot of people, and oh, sure. yeah, been great friends with them, and enjoyed it, and. But there was something about that show and that time in our lives. Yeah. We were both 25 yeah. years old. And, oh you know, it wasn't his first Broadway show, but it was mine. And the relationship in the show itself of the sort of young newbie and the, and the sort mm -hmm. of more, you know, uh, right. experienced devil character, right. whatever the hell the leading player right. is, who knows. It just, it made something happen. The moment we look at each other in the eye, we sort of... <laughs> We relive so many crazy moments, mm. Mm. wonderful ones and tough ones. And, right. and uh, uh, yeah, and, and it was at a time in our lives. We were both young fathers having children, you know, and so we were dads all day long with tiny little kids and feeding them and changing diapers <laughs> and singing and reading to them and taking them to the park. And then we were showing up and doing Pippin every night. As a dad who has a three-year-old literally outside the door right now, I, I, I can't even, having done Broadway shows before, I can't even imagine, I, I'm 41, having to yeah. do that. I, I just can't even imagine, John. Those kids, were uh, uh, one of them was 
what she was born in February and and we started rehearsals in July. Yeah. Wow. So and then on one Wednesday matinee during Pippin, uh, my son Mike was born. <laughs> I was in the hospital in the morning when he was born, ran, did the matinee, ran back to the hospital. No. Took care of my wife, did whatever I could, ran back, did the evening show. See? That's showbiz, folks. You don't call out. Showbiz. You don't call out. That's right. No. But then, a bunch of years later, I did Children of a Lesser God. Oh, yes. And again, the kids were six and eight or whatever they were. Right. And uh, I was, wasn't was changing diapers, but I was playing ball in the park. I was driving them to school in the mornings. I was right. doing Busy work. school stuff with them. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And I remember... One day I was just, I was coming to work on my bicycle because I was always on my bike and, you know, biking to the, to the Long Acre and saying, I wonder what it might be like to do one of these plays with these long runs. Cause I, I was lucky that my first two Broadway plays were big hits. Right. right and so right. I did two years in both of them. What it must be like to be able to sleep <laughs> in the morning and maybe have a nice lunch and, relax during the afternoon and then do the two hour and a half yeah. show where you're killing yourself on stage the whole time. I wonder what that might be like. I remember thinking that. <laughs> Didn't have that experience. No. Yeah. Not even close. You were with Pippin for two years, you said. Yeah. And then what What did you do after Pippin? I came back to LA, which was where I lived. Yeah. And I started doing TV, which I had done a lot before Pippin. Yes. Right, right. And I right. did little parts here and there. But then uh, I did a series called Family. Yes. Um, I, I was one of the many, many young actors who auditioned for Mike Nichols for uh, The Graduate. Mm-hmm. I didn't oh. get the part. I'll, <laughs> I'll drop that news on you. Uh-huh. And there was a funny afternoon, the very first afternoon that The Graduate came out months later it opened on a, in a theater here in la uh on wilshire boulevard only there uh this was before multiplexes and you know where movies opened in a million theaters and for the first show which was something like noon there was this line waiting to go in because the place was closed because it was the first show and when the door opened and it was all of all of us young actors. All of I knew everybody in the line, and all of the ones who had auditioned and not gotten the part. Right. Who was this guy Hoffman? You know, and how dare he? He's like thirty-five years old. He's playing a high school kid or a college kid. <laughs> what the hell, you know. Uh, and we all walked out of there saying, "Oh, okay, I get." It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I couldn't have done that. I wouldn't. Yeah. I know. When you were out in L.A. doing film and television, did you miss theater? Were you doing theater out in Los Angeles? Well, I mean, I started doing theater out here. My very first job was Camelot with Howard Keel. Um, (laughs) I I played the little boy who comes on at the end. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But I was 18. And that part, I was at the opening night of Camelot on Broadway. And... I remember always the little boy who comes on right. like eight or something. And the audience goes, oh, oh look at him. Goes, I want to fight. I want to fight in the war. And, and Richard Burton goes, no, my son, you know, there once was a fleeting wisp of glory. Tell what we tried to do with Camelot. Go, boy, go back. 
okay, I'm going, yes. <laughs> you know? And it's a little, it's totally. it's a little cloying, even though. A little tweet, fact, but yeah. yeah. So I got cast in that part. I was 18 because they didn't want to have a stage mom and have to send some little boy to school. Naturally, save, save some money. So they hired me. I looked younger than I was. I looked probably 15 or something. I was very skinny. But Howard, because he'd done a lot of Camelots around, he enjoyed doing that final, very important big scene with yeah. a, a young man who yeah. could, in some logical sense, go and fight in the war and be a right, warrior. Right. And remember what he was saying and tell the story. Yeah. He said, that makes the whole ending of the show not sentimental and silly and cute, but meaningful. Right. Which, which right. the people who wrote it meant it to be. Right, right. So he would then hire me to be Tom of Warwick wherever he played. <laughs> I did it with him around a bunch of times. I yeah, know. And that was when I was still at college. And then in my senior year in college, I got offered to play the William Daniels role in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. <laughs> yes. He's I like the, that we call the, it the William the Daniels role. I really appreciate 10, that. And 20, 30, yeah. then you're. Yes, of course. Best number in the show. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Howard Keel, again, playing uh, the guy, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Later, it was John Raitt for most of <laughs> Nice. And so I left school like three months before I would have graduated and did that for seven months on the road in a bus and truck doing one-nighters mostly, but sometimes oh. two. Wow. All over the country, got everywhere, and in Canada. Wow. So I had done all of that before Pippin. So I had yeah. a lot, you know, behind me. So you were able just to really focus on your film and television work after Pippin. Yeah, that's how you make a living out here. You know, the sure. theater is sporadic and low paying for for the most part. Yeah. And yeah. And so then I went for, you know, one of my many auditions uh, for this show called Family to right. play the husband of the oldest daughter of this family. Okay. And there was Mike Nichols in the room. Okay. This was, I don't know, what, about eight, seven years after the graduate thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had my two long scenes ready, you know, to, to read with whoever. Those were in the days where you read for right, right. the director, the producer, <laughs> Actually read, often yeah. the writer. The casting right. director would read with you. It was mm -hmm. a different era. <laughs> So I'm ready to read, and Mike Nichols, who was the executive producer of this, I think it was his first foray into television. Mm. Oh, and he said, "You don't want to. You don't want to read, do you?" Which was a very bizarre. Question. How do you answer that? I tried to just figure out what he meant, and he was just sort of being truthful. So I was truthful. I said, "Well, no." He said, "Okay, well then, the part's yours." Oh my gosh. And that was the most. And later, as I got to know him, he said, I remembered you from your audition for The Graduate. Okay, said, there you go. What? There really? You go. There you go. And I say that to all my students when That's I'm right. teaching. That's right. You might feel you were just one of 50 people who didn't get the part or even that you did a terrible job. They hated you. You blew it. You never heard from them. They didn't even call your agent. Nothing. And eight years later, they say, oh, yeah, you. I wanted you for the right job. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's right. It is. It's it really is, John. It, says, almost, it says more about Mike Nichols than about well, anything or anybody else. And your work ethic. But he yes, had that yeah. kind of a 
a mind and and an empathy. Right. So right. then I did that show for five years, although after the first six episodes, we divorced my mm. TV wife and I. Ah. Which was the first divorce. I, on, TV. on TV. I mean, like, we don't talk Where about Where a regular that. character is suddenly not there. No. Anymore. Yeah. And it got a lot of mail, and it made the show really sort of become... Uh, a big hit. It ran oh, for a long time. And I kept well, coming back. You know, we would get back together. She got right. pregnant. She had an abortion. Oh, my God, what we went through. Wow. But that and was then, what I did. And amidst it, I did a lot of other television. I did tons, oh, sure. tons of television. Yeah. Oh, I oh, mean, my God. You know, your your resume from then reads like just about a, a, no who's, a what's what of every single famous television show I had show no the idea. Era. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. You did so many spots oh, on so many places. Mary oh, Tyler God. Moore. Yeah. Yeah. Truly, I just wanted to know, is there a preference? And it feels like a, a classic, like, oh, who writes the lyrics or music first? But do you, do you care for theater or film more? You know, mm. does one, do you gravitate towards one over the other? I know that there's strengths and weaknesses with both, but do you prefer one over the other, John, when it comes to your, your, what I you guess, work? You know, I've been asked this question for half a century. I'm not saying it's a it's a no. It is kind of a rudimentary question. question it really, but yeah. it, 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 it's an interesting question, especially if that's not what what you're in, right? Uh, right. And I would always say, very honestly, not not trying to be evasive, that I love them both because because of the qualities of both Work. of them. Yes. When I've done and I've done what three or four shows which have had these incredibly long runs, either on Broadway or on Broadway and in a tour course, or something. Of course, legacy. I've done the same yeah. thing month after month after month after month after month. And most actors hate that. I've been in so many plays where after three months, the rest of the cast is saying, ah, Christ, when do I get out of here? Totally. Oh, do we have to do this again? Oh, shit. And I say, then what is the matter with you? <laughs> Totally. Are you fucking kidding me? This is what we're trying to do. Yes. It's not just the steady job, although that's a big part of it. It's that you never get it quite right. That's never. right. And so you always have another chance tomorrow to fix that thing or to totally. have a, maybe a brilliant new idea. Yes. A different audience which wants something else from you. I mean, it, it's such a wonderful experience. To be in the theater and to be with a live audience and to have to get through the whole damn thing if the set falls down. No stopping. You still have to carry on. There's something about it that is, I don't know, it's character building, you know, both in the play and in your own self. And most of all, and this now I'm old. So you start thinking about things like the rhythm of your day more than you did when you were in your 20s or 30s. Of course. Of course. I love that rhythm. And now that I don't have babies, I have a 16-year-old. So, you know, I've done... Oh. I've done... Wow. When I did ragtime for two years, I had another seven. <laughs> wow. I don't even know why, how you thought. One was born. I can't even believe it. A couple of months before ragtime started, and the other one was two. And oh, my so, God. <laughs> anyway, don't get me started. You're like in your 40s. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, you ain't kidding. Well done. Well done. And I had well my, my fifth child when I was almost 60. And... 
then I did Wicked <laughs> for two years. I don't know which is more exhausting, eight, eight shows a week or raising another child at 60. Well, tell yeah. you what. I had uh. yet to have the experience of, of a long run. No, no, I did. When I did Pippin playing Charlemagne yeah. on the road, yes. first on Broadway right. for a few right. months, and then we toured. Right. When it came back years. 40 years later, 40 plus years I later, I didn't amazing. have a tiny little child. Oh. Um, so yeah. But anyway, to answer your question, that rhythm. I think is my not not I think I know I swear mm-hmm. is my rhythm. I love mm-hmm. to sleep late in the morning. That's why I begged you to do this later in the day. <laughs> we love that. No problems here. And I love I come alive at night. And to me, six, seven, eight o'clock in the evening is when things get hot. I love to have a theater to go to. I love mm-hmm. working on Broadway. Mm-hmm because I love New York. I grew up there and riding my bike down Broadway, knowing that I'm going to pull up at the Imperial or at the mm-hmm, music mm-hmm, box. Or, mm-hmm. th- there's something about that that just makes me happier than anything else. Oh. Now, I've also been in many, many, many plays that have flopped and you yeah. work your butt off and you open and you close in humiliation. You read about yourself in the New York times about how you suck and everybody around you sucks. And that's no fun. And then you're out of work yeah. <clears throat> and nobody well, pays you anymore. When was the first time that you read a review like in the New York times, big, big, big review. I mean, I'm sure you probably can remember, but what was that show? What was the review? And well, Pippin, what? <clears throat> pardon me, Pippin, got mediocre reviews. Nobody liked it very much. Hmm. And that was very depressing. We and I believe that. it was Clive Barnes, was it? Oh, yeah. It might have been Clive Barnes who said something like, John Rubenstein mistakes energy for singing and sitting cross-legged for charm. Oh. <laughs> that wasn't nice. That's just mean. And that's after playing Pippin for two and a that's half hours. Just and mean. I wasn't just sitting cross-legged. But You're anyway. You're your ass off. Hello, this is Betty Davis. Not the young one. The old one. I've been on Matches.com. Looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's talk about Children of a Lesser God, which started in Los Angeles. Is that right? At the yeah, Center Theater? Well, it really started in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, at the University of New Mexico. And were you with uh, it from where, there? How'd you, know, yeah, how'd you get involved? Mark Medoff was the... Uh, I guess he was head of the drama department there, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and he met Phyllis Freilich there because she lived there with her husband, Bob, who was a hearing man. And he got to know them. I can't. I think Bob was a lighting designer, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. He turned okay. finally into my understudy in my role on Broadway. Oh, okay. He was a lighting designer for some of the shows that Mark was doing at the University uh, of New Mexico. Phyllis was his deaf wife, and they had two little hearing boys. Mm. And Mark became friends with them and fascinated by them and said, I want to write a play about you guys. And he did, using the whole dynamic of the completely deaf and non-speaking wife with the hearing and speaking husband and the dynamic of how that makes him suddenly her, her servant, her slave, her interpreter, her introducer to the world, her helper and fixer and, and, and how that affects the relationship. And so he wrote that play and they did it there with Bob playing that role and she playing her role. And then I don't know how Gordon Davidson got his hands on it, but somehow it traveled from New Mexico to Los Angeles and Gordon did it at the Mark Taper. And since Bob wasn't an actor, he probably did a very good job. I never saw him, but he wasn't really an actor. So sure. then they started casting for an actor to play that part. And and then uh, that's how I got it. Did you have any familiarity with sign language prior to this role? No, no. The audition was you had to learn whatever it was, a couple of scenes with, with the dialogue. But her dialogue was written like dialogue. Mm-hmm. The play reads, I want to go to dinner, she says. I say, mm-hmm. let's not go yet. She says, oh, come on, I'm hungry. No, I'm not. But nobody talks to you. So you learn this audition. And what they, what they did at the audition was they had somebody read her lines so that I could answer and sort of be who I was. But that took 10 minutes. Then I went into another room with a child of deaf parents who was now a professional signer and translator. Oh, okay. He was a wonderful guy, somebody you just like a teacher you fall into, you know. And he took me into the other room and there was a paragraph, pretty thick, long paragraph. And he taught the signs for that, which I had never done before at all. And then I had to come back in the room and for the director and the producer and and the writer, I had to do that Mm. while speaking it. I want to do this and that and sign and speak. That was tough. Wow. 
but I, but I, uh, I fell into it easier, I assume, than most. Probably because I played the piano all my life, and I was my gonna, fingers yeah. were limber. I was yeah. used to using my fingers individually, separately, ha- having a brain connected to my fifth finger here and my fourth finger there to hit the same notes. Do you know what I mean? You yes. do that long enough, and I'm sure it's true of playing the harp or the guitar or anything else, your fingers have a life of their own and you're used to it. Whereas I've I've witnessed a lot of actors in that play coming in, learning sign, and it's not learning the signs and remembering them. It's making your fingers do all those things quickly and without having to look at them and undo them and you know what i mean like choreography but i think i had a little bit of a leg up on that. how was this show then welcomed by the new york theater actually let me go back to the los angeles theater community when it was out at mark taper did you know oh we have something here yes here it was spectacular now again i don't remember any quotes about this is the greatest thing ever yeah. but it got very very good reviews mm. and the audiences loved it and the word of mouth was great it had a mm. limited run as all the taper things did right but it was sold out and it was it was magical here at the taper it was never mm. the same on broadway but mm. it was here because of i don't know if you know the mark taper theater but it's I, yeah. sort of like the vivian beaumont Yes. Better. It's one of my favorite theaters I've ever played. I've played in it many times. There was something about it. And the way the set was there in the round, I would run around the set from this area to that area as I was telling my story about it, you know. And on Broadway in the proscenium, they made, instead of the stationary benches in different places where I would go, we never had any props or any anything. We all pantomimed everything. But um on Broadway, they had these benches that would sort of slide in mm. sadly, and then they would yeah. slide it became over. Two-dimensional and, almost. Uh, yeah. It was yeah. it was mm-hmm. flat. It was mm-hmm. the, it loses the, the light. play was better in New York because mm-hmm. 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 rewrites and fixes. But but in, in, in LA, it's shape and it's just its form and with the signing. The experience. Oh, different. absolutely. Yeah. In the in the taper, that must have been magical. It was magical. And yeah. then when we came to New York, um, the reviews were way less good. They were quite middling. Huh. And uh, and so it was sort of middling. And we said, oh, shit, goodbye. And then Walter Kerr wrote that Sunday. We opened on a whatever, Tuesday or Wednesday or something. That Sunday, right. Walter Kerr said, wait a minute, this is really something. Oh, wow. Huh. He wrote, again, I can't quote it, but he wrote a very, very good positive review about that play. And that put us over. And then people started to filter in. We didn't do business for the first many weeks. Huh. But it started to go and to fill up and to fill up. We, don't, we didn't have any star names. We didn't have any, anything going for us. But people who saw it, were taken on a journey that most of them I've run into so many they've never forgotten. Yeah. Wow. wow. And it, that's wow. partly because of the way it was written. It was written yeah. the beginning of it is almost Neil Simony. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm charming and funny and I'm she's my student and I'm sort of, you know, making the moves on her not really not in the disgust way but just I'm flirting with her and yeah. I like her and she's combative and mean and sort of but I sort of break through that with my funniness and my cute charm. 
and we fall madly in love and we get married and then everything goes to shit. And by the end, it, the, the climax, it, it's just about a marriage, really. People think, oh, it's about sign language and it's about communication and it's about the deaf world versus the hearing world. And it is, of course, all about those things. But it's mostly about a marriage. Mm. And what brings you together and how once together, all of that starts getting complicated. It can last and it can grow and it can thing or it can stretch apart and kill you, which is what happens in this play. And they leave each other. She leaves him. And he's ended. He ends the play like, what, what did I do? What happened to my life? And people were terribly moved by that because it reflected so much of what they go through in their lives. And the deafness and the ballet of the sign language and Phyllis's amazing strength and performance, never saying a word. It, it was a big hit. It won the Tony Award for Best Play? Yeah. So it so that I think that's so fascinating that it went from something that you all thought was going to close yeah. quite rapidly into this massive hit. One of the credits I find so fascinating for you is you did Fools, Neil yeah. Simon's Fools, but you were also the composer. Yeah. Of that can can you walk us through this a little bit? And I know it's well, a reunion with Mike Nichols. Yeah, yeah, I had a long story with that. When when I did that show Family, Mike Nichols which was Aaron Spelling was the producer and Mark Rydell was the director of the pilot. Oh, wow. And I had just come off of Pippin. So they said, okay, you're, we want you in this show, seven years contract. And I said, seven years, man, I just came off of two years, which was long. Seven years. What if, what if I want to do something else? What if another Broadway show comes up? What if, what if, So I said to them, okay, but look, you're writing a show about a family. The mother and father, Seda Thompson and Jimmy Broderick, Matthew's dad, are the parents. I am the son-in-law. I'm not a member of the family, really. The oldest daughter is living with me. And then you've got Christy McNichol, who was 11 and charming, and Gary Frank, who is a teenager. So those four are your family. Mm. And me and the wife will come in every now and then. I said, but I, I've done and seen too much TV. It's going to end up where it's all about those four people. And every second or fourth episode, I'm going to be there with the wife at dinner. And we'll have a scene and we'll say, well, uh, yeah. And then we'll go. And, we, and meanwhile, I can't do anything else because right. I'm on salary on this show. So, so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Thank you. And then I was at my friend Colin Higgins's house. He was he wrote uh, Harold and Maud, mm-hmm. dear friend of mine. And I was hanging with him, and the phone rang at his house. And he answered it and said, "What? Oh, well, yes, he is. Okay, it's for you." And they had called my home, and my wife had told them I was at Colin's, and it was Mike Nichols and Aaron Spelling and Mark Rydell all on a conference call. And Mike said, why did you turn us down? We offered you that part. I said, well, <laughs> I love the part and I was so grateful to you and blah, 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 remembering me from before. I mean, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But 
I've just done this long stint on Broadway and seven years where I really feel that I'm not going to be in the show. He said, well, what if we guarantee you every third episode is the story is about you and the wife and the eldest daughter. Oh, that's good. I said, Geez, that's, that's great. Okay. And I had started this other career of, of scoring films. I scored two Robert Redford films right before Pippin. And Sidney Pollack, whom I had done Jeremiah Johnson for, wanted me to score his next film, uh, which was the Yakuza, a film that Robert Mitchum did in Japan. What? And I said, I, I'm doing Pippin now. I'm, I'm in rehearsal. I can't. He said, oh, geez. And he hired uh, Dave Grusin. So that sort of interrupted that career. So I said at that same phone call in Colin Higgins's house, I said, and, you know, I need to be scoring again. I had a, a thing starting. I'd done a few movies and a couple of television shows. And, mm-hmm. and, and Nichols said, well, why don't you score our show? I said, oh, OK, done. And then they sent me the first six scripts, which were the first six episodes that were going to be shot. And no, I wasn't in three of them. I mean, I was in all of them, but three of them were not about me. And the right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. As I knew they would be, as was right for them not to be. Right. Uh, it was right. It, it was, it, I wasn't like, oh, you told me. No, it just wasn't to be. And I knew that. So we did those six, of course. I'd said yes, and it was all planned. But I, I, I went to Aaron Spelling, and I said, hey, Aaron, remember our deal. And I'm not, you know, trying to be a troublemaker, but I, this doesn't live up to our, our agreement. So I'm out. He said, yeah, you're right, John, because there's no way we can really make the stories be about you and the wife because it's about Seda and Jim and Christy and you know, I said, you're absolutely so with completely happy relationship, no antagonism. I left the show and they had me divorce. And that then made the show sort of special. And then they kept having me back for five years. So when we're doing fools, Gordon was the one who said, You're writing music all the time, write the music for the play. I didn't even lobby for it. So Gordon Davidson hired you to star in the show and then to do the score for the show as well. Yeah. And then Gordon left the production. Yeah. And Mike Nichols came in. Yeah. Okay. What would you say are the major differences between, let's say, Gordon Davidson as a director and Mike Nichols as a director? Ooh, that's or maybe there, or maybe, or or what are their styles like for those of us who never got to be in a room with either Gordon or Michael? What were they like? That's really a tough one because <laughs> they're very, very different. Gordon was a little bit more hands off. He was brilliant working with playwrights, mm. helping them on a new play. He did with Mark Medoff miracles on mm. Children of a Lesser God and with Neil on Fools, too. And his staging would be sort of organic, mm. which was very good. I mean, he staged a lot, a lot, a lot of shows. And I think his staging of Children of Lesser God at the taper was, was brilliant. The dynamic with Mike was that he enjoyed it. He enjoyed it more. 
he would scream with laughter in his high-pitched, screaming, laughing voice. <laughs> like that, in the middle of rehearsal, which was so encouraging. It would give you such a lift. You did some stupid thing and he would do that. And he really had ideas. Why don't you, John, stop for a second. Why don't you go to that, pick up that thing and start undoing those. I remember in, in uh, Hurley Burley, I did with him, take the pictures. And uh, while you're talking about something completely else, you're looking at pictures of beautiful girls. I was a casting director. Mm. Looking at pictures of beautiful girls, eight by tens, and just looking at them and flinging them into the wastebasket. While well, you're talking about something else, and you're barely looking at them, you're just flinging people's careers into the basket while you're talking. I would never have thought of that. I don't. Right, I, right, I don't have right. a creative mind about props, about what to do, about blocking. Business, I have a yeah. sort of a naturalistic instinct. Yeah. It works, but even as a director, I've directed a lot, and yeah, I do what makes sense. I don't yeah. almost never say, oh, here's a thing. What if you know? And I I worship directors who do and have that. Peter Brook, you know, Mike Nichols for sure. And he was like a little boy in with a train set. Mm. He was he loved it. And that was infectious. Everybody wow. loved working for him. Wow. For that reason. Yeah. What a great leader. Yeah, to have you in trust the room. him with your life. Yeah. Then after this, it seems like the 80s and 90s, you're you're fluctuating back and forth between stage work, things like Hurley Burley and Butterfly. Yeah. Um, and Kane then Mutiny I did in there too. And Kane Mutiny was in there as well. Uh, and then doing television, Crazy Like a Fox. Did I say yeah. that right? <laughs> mm -hmm. With the great Jack Warden. When did you start to realize that LA had a viable theatrical scene for you? Because you did so much theater out in Los Angeles. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, in the early 90s, yeah, uh, with my new marriage and my new set of kids, I was out here doing uh, television, trying to just, you know, pay the bills. I had run away from New York, partly, not entirely, but partly to get away from Frank Rich, who hated me. What? And I figured, why would any self-respecting Broadway producer hire me knowing that Frank Rich was probably more than likely going to, you know, put the kibosh on that. So I came back out here where I was, you know, at home and very comfortable uh, to do television, to keep that going. And uh, I joined a little theater out here of expat New Yorkers. Uh, and we started doing plays here, where, which I, very often directed and cast myself in my favorite parts. Very smart. Best way to yeah. do it. Yeah. How else am I going to get those damn parts? <laughs> and, uh, and we had a great success and that theater company still exists. And I'm still a member of it, although I don't work with them very much anymore. Uh, what's the name of the company, John? Interact Theater Company. Thank you. That was another sort of enchanted period in my professional and personal life of working with all those wonderful actors uh, we're all great friends. It was like a club, you know, where mm -hmm. we would just go and we would build the sets and we do would theater together. Yeah. Let me go back and ask you. So you left New York because the lead critic of the New York Times did not 
see your brilliance and you thought you would be a liability to, I, I'm going to say it. I just so, bugged him, you know, there was something about me that he didn't like and that's fine. Did yeah. you? And did you think you were going to be a liability to producers at that Absolutely. point? Absolutely. He hated fools yeah. with such hatred and vitriol. And I bore the brunt of that. He wasn't particularly awful to me personally, but months later, he put a picture of me in the New York Times in Fools while reviewing a completely different play. But he didn't like that the lead actor in that play was talking to the audience like I did in Fools. What? And he said, as if John Rubinstein in Fools weren't bad enough talking to the audience. Here again, we have an actor talking. to." So, I mean, he was like after me. And then then there was the famous thing of... of uh, New Musicals, which was an attempt by producers, Hal Prince among them, to save the big money of going out of town to Washington, D.C., and to New Haven, and to Philadelphia, and then having to reconstitute everything if you made it into Broadway. They started a thing at SUNY Purchase, where on a Broadway-sized stage, full orchestra, full sets, different than a workshop where you do it in no costumes with mm -hmm. a piano and, and expect people to figure out if they want to see that musical or not. You get a good idea of it, but not really. So Hal Prince and those guys put up Kiss of the Spider Woman, which was the very first oh, yeah. of those. And I was given the lead in that, playing the Molina role with Kevin Gray playing the other part and Lauren Mitchell playing the Spider Woman. And we did it up in SUNY Purchase with a full Broadway production. And the agreement was that no theater reviewers would come and review it. And they all agreed, except the New York Times, <clears throat> Frank Rich. He said, no, I won't. If you're doing a new Candoranet musical in Westchester County, which is part of greater New York, uh, I am the New York Times theater critic. I will be there and I will review it. And they said, please, please don't because <laughs> it's out of town. You wouldn't come to Philly and do it. No, nope, yeah. this isn't Philly. Is right, it? right. So right, he yeah. came and gave Kiss of the Spider Woman mm -hmm. and me and everybody in it a, just a terrible review and killed not only our show, but new musicals. <clears throat> they went under wow. and they stopped. They even went to the New York Times. Stephen Sondheim went and Hal Prince and all these guys who had, some of them had nothing to do with new musicals begging the editors and the bosses of the Times, don't please have Frank Rich come up there. Yes, they did. And that destroyed the whole thing. And it was then that I said, you know what? Let's go back to California. Do some yeah. TV. Wow. Now, John, you hold a very interesting distinction, which is you starred in Stephen Sondheim's only play <laughs> that he's ever done on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, tell yeah. us about Getting Away with Murder. How did you get involved with it? And uh, what that process was like. Well, that was Jack O'Brien at the Old Globe. I didn't know him personally, but I guess I, I guess he'd seen me in New York in things, you know? Yeah. And he right. figured I would be good in that part. And he called me up and said, hey, you want to work at the Old Globe down in San Diego for a few months, a couple of months, whatever it was? He sent me the play. It looked like great fun. Um, and I said, yeah. Yeah. I had done... Um, Merrily We Roll Along with Stephen. Yes. In its first revival. Right. After the Broadway run. So well, was I that the first he, time you met him? No, no. The first time I met him, 
I was living at Garson Canaan and Ruth Gordon's house in Turtle Bay. And uh, like you do. Yeah, like you no do. Biggie. But they were old friends. And I was doing Children of a Lesser God. I had my two little babies and I had no place to live. I was thrown out of Annie Reinking's apartment because she wasn't allowed to sublet it. I was living there. And we all came home after walking in the park one day and found a notice saying, you're evicted. You're not allowed to sublet Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So I called up Garson and he said, yeah, go to our place. So we lived at their house. Next door to Catherine Hepburn, who was also in yeah, and around the corner from Stephen Sondheim. And one day I was playing the piano in Garston's living room, which looked out onto the shared gardens of all those beautiful townhouses on East 49th Street. And then there was a ring at the doorbell. And I went downstairs because that was up on flight and uh, opened the door. And there's Stephen Sondheim. I recognized him, of course. And he said, please stop playing the piano. I'm trying to write some music and you're driving me crazy. And I said, okay, I'm sorry. That was the first time I met him. <laughs> <laughs> then I auditioned for him later to take over for Mandy Patinkin in, in Sunday in the Park. And I, I learned the blue, 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 that yep. crazy song. Yep, yep, and I yep. sang it well. But then they popped Bernadette Peters on me, who was continuing in the play, and made us sing, move on, and I had the sheet music, and I hadn't memorized it, because oh, I didn't think shit. I was going to have to sing a duet. Yeah. And there yeah. she was. Let alone her being there. Yeah, yeah her, and she'd been doing oh, the play for fuck. a year. Yeah. And and I dropped the pages they accordionated onto the floor. Oh, God. It was, just, it was oh, God. horrible. Yeah. Didn't get the part. They gave it to Westenberg, who had been yeah, already in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then um, I was in Switzerland with my wife and kids <laughs> skiing. <laughs> and phone call of the hotel. It was Lapine, James mm -hmm. Lapine. Yeah. And he called me up and he said, we want you to play the lead in uh, Merrily. We're doing it at the, at the La Jolla Playhouse. Wow. I said, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> When? And that was from that blown audition. See, once again, yeah. once again, once again, the quote-unquote blown audition. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't know Lapine at all. I only oh, knew, oh and I knew, I knew George Firth a little bit. So that's why I did the play that George right. Firth wrote right. Right. with right. Stephen. So let's go back to getting away with murder then. So you, were, you did it out in San Diego. How did y'all feel out in San Diego? This was going to be a hit? We weren't sure. It <laughs> was funny. It was fun. But it didn't, it didn't feel like all the nuts and bolts were holding it together. It, it rattled, you know? Yeah, mm. yeah. We had confidence and we had ambition and we wanted to make it great. And we had Stephen and we had, you know, uh, uh, Jack O'Brien. And, and then it came to Broadway. One of the problems was absence of writers. Stephen and George were being celebrated in London right then for some sort of anniversary giant production of Company, mm -hmm. which they'd written together. And, and they were absent in La Jolla for much of the time. Not all of the time, but too much of it, where we should have been with our sleeves rolled up, working right. on the work, mo work mode. Yeah. And we weren't. You like having the writer in the room. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And same as a director? What do you mean? 
like as a direct, when you are directing a project, do you like having the writer in the room with you? Some directors don't, some actors don't. No, I'm perfectly happy to have the writer in the room. They yeah, very okay. often don't want to be there mm. because they they don't want to feel that they want to object or they want to interject and sure. have to shut themselves up. So they stay away and they say, show it to me when blah, 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 when you've done this or when you've, you know. But no, if a writer wants to be there and you can talk to them, no, it's a collaborative. It's all collaboration. I'm sure you hate this question as an actor and a director, but what's next for you? You were fabulous in being the Ricardos, by the way. Uh, thank you. That was fun. Fantastic. It made me so happy to see you and Linda. It was just, it was, yes. it was very exciting. It was very yeah, yeah. exciting. Absolutely wonderful. Is there anything still on your, you know, your your bucket list in terms of a project? Not necessarily even directing a show per se, but... You know, is there another company that you want to get off the ground? Is there is there another theatrical thing you would like to start? Yeah, I want to play James Tyrone in Long Day's Journey into Night. Oh. Fabulous. It's a play Fabulous. that's revived all the time. All the time. You know, and I'm not a big star, so they always sell it because they've got Laurence Olivier or whoever they got, you know. So I probably won't. And I, I would have done it at my little interact here. Not mm. mine. I mean, about uh, about the little theater that I belong yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. But they just are doing a production of it now. And so, God damn it! Somewhere I would like to do that before I'm 103. Yeah, right. yeah. You will I be. Love that play. Oh, and I oh, love it's that so part. good. I, I also wouldn't mind playing Sweeney Todd somewhere. Oh. I was going to ask. Have you ever done that before? I've done numbers from it at Interact. Yeah, but not benefits. But, oh but man, not, I want to see that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would really yes, like please. to see that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, John, the last question we'll ask you, which is something we ask all of our guests, which is, what do you know now that you wished you had known when you first started in this business? That's deep. I know, right? We'll give you one deep one. That's it. <laughs> I guess I would say something along the lines of, beware of saying no. Hmm. I've always been raising children, so I've always been under the gun of having to pay the rent. Most yeah, people yeah. are too. Yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah. when you have five kids over no, no, decades, that's a lot. That's a lot it's, John. it's it's a it's a burden. It's a it's a, a deadline. Respons a responsibility. Yes. yes, major. So my very very long bio <laughs> comes both primarily from enthusiasm of loving the work. But secondarily, uh, of having to work. Mm. So I've said yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and yes. And happily so. And I've been in TVs and movies and shows that weren't any good. And I've loved doing those as much mm -hmm. as the big hits. Although the big hits were more fun because they lasted longer and paid more money. But there were a bunch of times over my long career where, for whatever reason at the moment, it was never money. It was always something else. Mm. Something to do with timing, something to do with children, something to do with uh, location or something where I didn't say no, but I would say to my agents, well, can you make that better for me? Yeah, yeah. Do I have to go to Yugoslavia for nine months <laughs> for that money with that billing? Can they get a little better money Yeah. or maybe a little less time Yeah. there? Yeah. Yep. And suddenly I don't get that part. Mm. And I wanted it and would have done it happily, but I was trying to make it better. 
And somewhere the communications with agents and with the producers, because, oh, I guess he doesn't want to do our, our thing. Mm. Fuck him. Move to the I... next guy. I had terrible conversations with some of the great pillars of the theater asking me, why? Why, why aren't you... you doing our thing? Yeah. Yeah, and I, would think, well, I, I, I want to. I wanted to. I, I didn't mean to not do it. Yeah, but family's so that important. would be because otherwise I have no regrets, including the flops. Of course, I'm. I regret that they flopped, but I don't regret doing them. It's not. Oh God, I shouldn't have done that play. No, I loved it. You know, but right. that those are the things that I sometimes even think about. You know, mm -hmm. how would my career, my life? Everything have been different if I had done that. Maybe not at all. It would have been maybe just another job like all the others. Right. Yeah. Maybe not. Right. I mean, the big you... stars who make the big money, sure, they've got the money. Great. They don't have that worry. But they have a different life. They right. have people after them all the time. They can't right. go anywhere. And I've, by not getting that gigantic career thing, I've avoided that yeah. while working yeah. the whole time. But still so always working. sort of had it the best it can be almost. I would say so. You get yeah. to work. You get to create, you know, and you're and you can become a chameleon and you can act one day and direct the next day. And I mean, Compose. you My God. teach. I mean, you've got, I think, a career that so many people would love to have. I, I get that. Yeah. I, I appreciate I it. I am yeah. humble about it because... Mm. I've been extremely lucky, and and also I've just never given up. Well, I'm so, so thankful that you have not, because I mean, on behalf of you know Kevin and myself, but all of our listeners, thank you so much for all the brilliant and beautiful work that you've given us over the oh. years. Seriously, you don't need to thank me. I've, I'm blessed to have been allowed to do it. Thank you, thank, so thank much, you so Kevin. much. Thank, seriously, thank you, thank you. Bye, bye, bye. -bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.